Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. This topic, uh, tonight we'll be talking about, um, this is another quantum craft, and we're going to talk about the, the fix-it catalyst. Um, and this is a companion podcast to uh, types of fixes. So uh, let's get going. Okay. Before we get started, I did want to do one quick thing I forgot to do earlier. I want to give a congratulations to our first fluff bingo, which was Claire Watson. Overachiever. Go, yes. <laughs> She turned in her first four fluffy topics and you go. She also incidentally had the first bingo card. She had bingo card number one. <laughs> and she turned in cafe dancing baby goats and sharing body heat. So go check out her site. Claire's baby goats. Baby goats. <laughs> yeah. So her site is Claire'sNook.com, and you can go see her fluff bingo stuff. Okay. The catalyst. Um, the catalyst for change, um, I like to do a small one, which is kind of crazy considering I did a giant one for Unleash Your Demons, but that's because Infinity War did me wrong. <laughs> mm -hmm. I had a giant mess to fix. <laughs> I need to make a, I, I, I needed to make a hard, a hard play. So. Yeah. But I think uh, you made a very small, um, you had a very small moment of change. Um, the catalyst, um, yeah, saw it was a struggle, and it was, and then it just rippled out like, like a bomb. It was a very, it was a very tiny thing. It was just a notice. It was the moment that he noticed that Erica and Boyd had given up, and how wrong that was. And that tiny thing was his catalyst for change. Is that he just wasn't going to accept that. And the, the catalyst can be big. It can be a character, a, a whole other person. It could be getting, you know, it could be just a, a different event happens. It could be external or internal. Your catalyst could be external or internal. Um, I did an internal catalyst, which is that it was Tony, it was not Tony, Styles noticing something. Um, but you, you can have external catalysts too. Uh, it could be... Um, somebody says something to somebody or it could be uh, a character goes left instead of right and they run into somebody else and that by running into somebody else it sets them on a different path so you have to decide what kind of catalyst you want to have but you have to have something right you need and even if you don't spell it out and you don't need to spell it out but even if you it may, and sometimes spelling it out could be clunky but you need to know what it was it can't just be things went different <laughs> well but why did they go different? You know, what what about what you're doing? What what caused the character to do something differently? What what was the impetus for change? And if if you don't know in advance what it is, um, well, you know, I I say I say actually, it's a little bit of a fall down in your process because you have to understand why your character is doing something different than canon. Um, some sometimes. Um, if you're starting post, if you're starting post series or post movie or post canon, um, your your catalyst is conceivably. If you're going post canon, you're looking at doing time travel. Okay, maybe not always, but for the most part, the only reason to start post canon is because you're planning to do time travel. 
Um, right. So in, in that case, <laughs> Canon going so badly, or sometimes your catalyst for change is something that you, is catalyst is usually something you're inserting. I almost say it all, I can't think of an incident where catalyst wouldn't be something that you're inserting, which is why your catalyst cannot be the thing you're fixing. So if you do an enormous catalyst, like um, everybody, the wraith come to earth and cull it, right? If that, 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 is, that could be a big catalyst for time travel, okay? If that's your catalyst, your catalyst cannot be the thing you're fixing, because that you you created the situation that you're fixing, and therefore it's not a canon fix it, right? So and so when you call it what so the 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 catalyst, which is the impetus that sends them wanting to travel back in time and prevent the Earth from calling the Earth from being cold, then what you need to explore is the the ramifications of their time travel on canon events, okay? Um, but the fix is not preventing the earth from being cold, right? Because you, you created that. That didn't happen in canon. What if the catalyst is a character dying and not staying dead? Um, not zombie undead. Well, <laughs> if your catalyst is that, okay, so let's say Thorin does die at the Battle of the Five Armies, and um, Mahal says, nope, <laughs> kicks him out. That, says, that's not what I had planned. You're supposed to be the father of the next Durin the Deathless. You done um, fucked up. You need to go back and impregnate your hobbit. <laughs> <laughs> Ever how so, hobbits do that. <laughs> or, you know, let your hobbit plant something. Um, so if you could, that absolutely could be a catalyst, right? Is a character dies and you're bringing them back somehow. How? But the fix is if the death was canon, that could be your fix, right? But that's not 50K. So exploring the consequences of that character coming back, I would assume, would be your fix-it. And there okay, would be Ellie asks, is Hobbit impregnation a fix-it or an AU? It would be a fix-it because nowhere in canon does it say that Bilbo can't get pregnant. Or does it say that the Hobbits don't make Hobbit Cabbage Patch babies? This is where canon being light on details... Is to your, your benefit. favor. <laughs> Bilbo, all, all hobbits could be intersex. It's just some have more obviously female secondary characteristics. There's nothing that says that they don't. There's nothing that says that every hobbit doesn't have a penis and a vagina. So um, you could write, there's a lot of different things you could do, right? But if, if your fix is that Mahal says, if your catalyst, it's not your fix, but your cat, well, it's both the catalyst and the fix. The catalyst is Mahal goes, no, wait a minute. You're not supposed to die. That was not the plan. You're supposed to be ruling Erebor. Dane is just an idiot. He can't be trusted with it. Get back. Wake up. I'm going to go ahead and fix you and go have babies. Um, otherwise, Middle Earth is doomed. Go, go, go. Okay. So that's your catalyst. And the fix is immediate, right? And your insertion point is where Thorin wakes up. Right. So Thorin wakes up. Or that's when not Thorin right. wakes up. When. That is not 50K. So your fix it, presumably, your story is about the ramifications of your fix. So you have a catalyst. Your catalyst, this is a quick fix. Thorin's alive, right? I have fixed the thing that went wrong. Now what? 
Now canon is implicitly going to be massively changed because the king is alive. So now what? Then you explore the consequences of foreign living. And it has huge ripples. Huge. And your insertion point is really super important as well here because if you wake Thorin up, if you don't let him, if he doesn't die and Bilbo finds him and he gets and he wakes up in a healing tent, Feely and Keely are already dead. If you wake him up somewhere on the quest and he no longer has gold sickness, Feely and Keely are still alive. So picking your point where he where Mahal sits him is super important in this particular circumstance. So one of the questions is what if he wakes up after Dane is crowned? Well, the thing is is that if your catalyst is is the idea that Mahal needs Thorin to rule, he wouldn't have Thorin wake up after Dane is crowned because it's contrary to his goals. If his if your catalyst is about your catalyst for change, the impetus for change, the catalyst thing that, because Mahal is functioning as the catalyst here, right? He is saying, no, it's an external catalyst, basically saying, this is not the plan. You're supposed to be the father during the deathless, but it doesn't matter if Thorin is king or not. Well, then it doesn't matter when he wakes up, but is it cruel to Thorin who has been trying to get Erebor back to deny him that? Also, the later you wake Thorin up, if he's been dead for a long time, you have now inserted problems for yourself in. Because people, you know, I mean, yes, Glorfindel comes back from the dead on a... Uh, is he reincarnated? Is he, he was reincarnated all the time, He right? was reincarnated, yeah. Right. So people just don't come back from the dead. Um, and so that is going to be looked at probably with suspicion. And... Well, Bilbo, Bilbo not going back to the Shire doesn't preclude Frodo coming to live with him if he stays in close contact with, with the Shire. Uh, with the Shire, his parents want Bilbo to be Frodo's guardian for whatever reason, and Bilbo has every right to go get Frodo and bring him back to Erebor. You've seen several stories where that happens in The Hobbit, and it seems logical and reasonable that Frodo would get to live in Erebor. <laughs> Because yeah. we like that idea. Um, <laughs> and Thorin likes hobbits. Why can't he have two? <laughs> so, but also Thorin living and Bilbo staying in Erebor potentially changes when the ring is handled. So you've got to figure, you know, you've got, there's a lot of consequences to that kind of thing. Um, and potentially good. But you notice you're not really exploring um, your, your fix. This is a case of where your fix has changes right and we there's a there's a one of the faqs on um quantum bang talks about a change that becomes a fix it like ripples into the fix it fixes things as it ripples out and then which is more what i wrote um and then sometimes there is a fix that ripples changes if you've got if you're fixed the thing you're trying to fix happens quickly then what you're exploring in your novel is the effect of that fix thorn is back i have fixed it but now what what does that do what does that change that is your quantum craft is to figure out what the effect of your fix is your catalyst was mahal saying uh uh no get get thee back thorn wakes up 
that's your fix. Thorin's not dead. Those of us who would like to see Keely and Feely alive would prefer you have him wake up before the battle so that the boys aren't dead. But whatever. You do you. Do your, Pick your point. You've got your fix. He wakes up. Now you've got changes. You've got to figure out what the ripples of that is. And it potentially has massive consequences to all of Middle-earth Thorn surviving. So what are you going to do? Um, could it obliterate the events of Lord of the Rings? Yes, it could. Is that okay? Yes, it is. Yep. Um, One interesting way to get a whole bunch of hobbits in Erebor, and it's something that I'm exploring in Spiritborn, is that the, the, the Shire's magic um, is having a hard time containing the population because hobbits believe in a whole bunch of babies. And so the, the magic that protects the Shire is, is splitting in two, and half of the population needs somewhere else to go. And the Thane has decided that... Um, that half of the Shire, the ones that want to go, will go with Bella to Erebor. So Bella and Thorin are about six months ahead of the rest of the Shire, <laughs> or half of the Shire, showing up in Erebor <laughs> with the rest of the um, Durin folk from the, the Blue Mountains. So Bella and Thorin have not only the burden of their gifts, of their time travel, but also the knowledge that their families and their peoples are just six months behind them. So they have to get in that mountain. They have to kill that dragon and they have to prepare that mountain for his clan and half of her people. And when they get there, it's winter. So they have a lot going on. And that's how I fixed it so that Frodo would be an Erebor. <laughs> the whole point was, well, well Bella won't have Frodo. <laughs> we got to we we have tiny Frodo. Tiny Frodo is an important part of this. <laughs> exactly. Hmm. Um, My stupid neighbors are doing fireworks again. Can you guys hear it? I heard a little pop. Is that what that was? Yeah. Uh, so when you when you're looking, we we decided because figuring out inciting incident is the inciting event or inciting incident is very it's a little bit tricky, and so we decided not to do a full podcast on it. But you kind of need to, your catalyst need kind of should lead directly to your inciting incident, right? And we can talk about it a little bit in response to fix it because I can, I can tell you what the catalysts and the inciting incidents are in my stories that are fixits. So I can point to my own stuff because the only person, Thorn is the oldest of three children. Both Farron and Dee's are younger. Yes. So there was there was a question about line of descent um, in the in the chat room. So that was where that came from um, because the original question was a feeling Keely are still alive and Thorne and Bilbo have a son who gets to rule. Um, there's clearly since Feely was the named heir, there is no m male line of descent. Okay. Unless it's just because clearly the nephew of his sister was able to be named heir. So therefore 
She wasn't the heir, though, so clearly the king had to be male, okay? So it had to be male, but it didn't have to go strictly through the male line. It could go through the female line as well. So how, what, what, what who would be heir would be something you would have to, uh, it doesn't, that you, you'd have to decide that, whether or not it was because he had kids or not, you would have to decide what the rule would be for, for them. Would, would his children with Bilbo be eligible to rule? If, if yes, if you would decide, if you want Bilbo's children to be able to be the future king, if you're writing it during the deathless thing, then I would think you would want to enable Erebor's laws to support that to happen. And the fact of the matter is, is if Bilbo birthed or cradled during the deathless, the moment he was recognized as during the deathless, he would be the heir because he's fucking during the deathless. <laughs> right. Um, but it, it, line of inheritance is, it's something you have to work out for your story is how that's going to work. Um, it, most stories I've read just say it has to be a Durin sitting on the throne of, of, of somebody from that line, which conceivably means that Dwalin could have been named King. He could have been named heir conceivably under that rule of thumb that it just has to be a Durin. Which is why Thorin um, was able to name his heir. In one of my stories, Gimli talks about the fact that he has as much right to the throne of Erebor as um, Thorin um, Stonehelm, as Dane's uh, son. Dane's son. Yeah. yeah. Um, because he's the son of Gloin, who's also of the line of Durin. Um, so. I, you know, I've always kind of wanted to write a story where um, Gimli ends up on the throne of Erebor. But that would probably be because Thorin still de- was still dead, and I don't want to do that. Well, of course, he'd probably have died of old age at that point anyway. But I still like the idea of Gimli. Um, you know, I think that's a disservice to Gimli. Um, I think that Gimli could rise to that occasion and be a very good king. Um, and if he has a gorgeous elf in his bed, I don't know why he'd be miserable. <laughs> I'm just <Yeah>. saying. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying. You just imagine th- 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 Thrandriel? Is that how you say his name? Thrandriel? Thrandriel. Coming to Erebor and saying, you know, <sighs> I guess we can have a political arrangement between you and my son. And he, like, only thinks of it as a political arrangement, despite the fact that Legolas has, you know, basically demanded this. Um, that, that he wants, that he wants Gimli. And his dad's like, it's just a political arrangement. He'll get over it. <laughs> um... It just, just amuses me. The idea just amuses me. There's actually a really great story where um, Gimli um, um, leads a group of uh, Jawaro and um, Jawabits uh, who uh, some of them are Thorin ended up in the Blue Mountains and ended up married to um, Bilbo and Bilbo brought a lot of hobbits with him and those hobbits interbred with the the Dwaro there and eventually those Dwaro um, 
travel with Gimli to the to those caves, to the glittering caves or whatever they were that, that he found, the glittering caves, whatever that, whatever they're called. And Legacy was his um, consort. Oh, I've never read this story. It's a really good story. Um, and Willow has found it. There, the, the first, it's um, it's AU obviously, um, and there's a really interesting storyline about the orcs. Um, and the orcs that are left behind. Um, it's called Coats and Customs um, by Imaginary Golux, G-O-L-U-X. Uh, and it's, 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 it's I, re- I started reading it because I, I was really into Thorn and Bilbo. And I kept reading it, even though I really wasn't on, I didn't think I was going to be on board with um, Gimli and um, Legolas. But by the end of it, I was 100% on board with Gimli and Legolas. <laughs> I was like, yes. <laughs> so if you've not read Coats and Customs, you, you most definitely need to. Because it is, it is awesome. Thorin and Bilbo have an arranged marriage. And it's called Coats and Customs. Because when Thorin comes back to his, um, his chambers after the wedding ceremony, um, Bilbo has taken off all of his clothes. And all he's wearing is Thorin's coat. Because that's the Hobbit custom to greet your new spouse in their coat, as an as as a um as an acceptance of their ability to shelter and provide. It also apparently has a whole bunch of podfix attached to it as well. For those of you who like podfix, so, so um yeah, coats and customs. I highly recommend it. You can find the podfix linked in the um um. I put the link in the podcast link library. If you open up the first story in the works inspired by this one section is the link to the podcast, the, the, the pod fix. So you can find that there. Um, but it is a Canon divergent AU and not a fix it. Excellent work though. Very engrossing. I mean, it will, um, it will eat your life until you're done. Um, okay. So catalyst it, we decided not to go into a full podcast about inciting incident or inciting event because it can be very difficult to actually, for starters, agree on what the inciting incident or the inciting event is. And you will find more than one definition for inciting incident. Um, But what you can do for certain is the person who wrote it is the one who has, is the probably the ultimate authority on what is the inciting incident. when it comes to a fix it, you kind of need to understand what your what what the catalyst for change is, and is the cat is that thing that happens as a result of the catalyst? Is that your inciting incident? And the inciting incident, I'll read you one of the definitions of it. The one of the ones that works for me. Um, it's an event that hooks the reader into the story. This particular moment is when an event thrusts the protagonist into the main action of the story. Um, and another thing says, um, the inciting incident is the event or decision that begins the story's problem. Everything up to that moment is backstory. Everything after is, quote, the story. Before the moment, there's an equilibrium, a relative peace that the characters have in a story have grown accustomed to. This incisive moment or plot point occurs and upsets the balance of things. Suddenly, there's a problem to be solved. So... What is the moment, and it could be at the moment where you have your catalyst, where you are beginning your problem, where you're solving things, right? 
And that is important things to identify what that is. So in some, I guess some people might disagree with me. I'm not interested. This is my story. I'm not interested in anybody else's really opinion. Well, actually, if Kira has an opinion about it, she can give it to me, but I'm not interested in anybody else's opinion. But in unobstructed views, um, the catalyst was that moment when, when Styles realized that they had given up. Now, things started changing there. So some people would argue that him refusing to leave the basement without the, the moment he, he got injured worse because he refused to leave without Erica and Boyd. So you could argue that that's the inciting incident, but I would disagree because the point of the story is not, was not to save Erica and Boyd. The point of the story was to fix my theme. What I'm trying to do is fix the relation between Styles and his father. So therefore the inciting incident is actually the moment he chose not to lie about what happened. The moment he made that decision to tell the truth to his father is the inciting incident. Because from that point, everything was going to change. Because that is what propelled the fix, was him choosing to stop the lying and let his father in. And there would be no story without that incident. And that is pivotal when you're writing a fix-it, is what is the thing that your plot is hooked on? And you need to know it. You need to know what is is feeding your point. What is the start of your point? Because you're making a point, right? You're, you're working towards a climax. Your catalyst is getting things started. You've got this thing that's inciting change. And you've got this event that something's going to happen that is going to drive you to the point of your story, whatever that is. And then inciting incident is the beginning of the point. Now you do unleash your demons. Catalyst and inciting incident. My inciting incident and unleash your demons. Your catalyst was canon, right? It was a snap. Right. My catalyst was the snap. Um, specifically, it was the disappearance of... Um, it was the dusting of Peter Parker. Uh, so the snap. Um, that moment put Tony Stark on a, on a path. And... Um, but I would say my inciting event is when he lands in the past. Everything before that is um, theory. It's wishful thinking. And until he closes his fist, and I did that on purpose, the closing of the fist instead of a because of another snap, because it wasn't the, the snap destroyed. And I wanted Tony to bring it all back together. So I had him tighten up his fist to activate the the stones because he had the universe in his hand he had the fate of the universe in his hand so he wrapped his fingers around the fate of the universe and made a really hopeful wish and when he landed back in time that's his moment of of immense momentum it's boom and then we're off to the races but when I look back at Unleash Your Demons, I still feel I, I, there's still one big thing that I want to fix that is not fixed. I fixed a lot, but I didn't end up fixing the one thing I think is the most important. That asshole Thanos is still alive. <laughs> and, that, and that's a fucking problem. That is a problem. Yep. 
So you didn't get you got you got you got a sequel coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah let's let's a, a coming. Well, I mean, in the overall arc of what will be the unobstructed view story is um, the inciting incident for the overall storyline. The whole storyline, with the things you guys don't know yet, was actually the it's there was a line. Styles says, um, "The Argents owe this town a blood debt." Styles inadvertently woke his magic completely in that moment because he was so angry. Um, I personally thought that was justice. I know that they were all like offended and shit that they were bound to the town, but they're both fucking criminals and they actually should be in jail. So just being jailed in Beacon Hills seems like poetic fucking justice to me. Well, it is. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) But Styles' magic fully awakening that young at that point, because he did, because he inadvertently, and the thing he doesn't, um, it comes up in the sequel very early in the sequel, which is part I've already written, Kira's read this, um, is he's wanting to know how he did this, right? And that calling uh, down blood debts are something that is judged by a sort of higher magical authority of some sort. Like, you know, there's a lot of different, a lot of different examples of who could judge this kind of thing. And sometimes it's more of a magical sentience that judges who's right and who's wrong in terms of a blood debt. So the question was, and so it's the one example of magic that Styles performed that could have been done somewhat accidentally, that if he had some sort of magical ability, he could have inadvertently done this without ritual. And what Styles ultimately, what they find out is that the magical authority who judged Styles' intent was Styles. Um, that he's the magical authority that he woke up. He woke up his own magic. He has a magical authority he isn't, isn't aware of, but that he's the one who actually ultimately judged it as being valid. So his assertion that they owed the debt was all that was required. <laughs> it and wasn't, really, it, honestly, they do owe the debt. And they do. he has no business being all... Um, uh, put out by it because he fucking tortured the principal of the high school and he didn't get Styles' medical attention and he found three kidnapped physically abused and nearly dead teenagers in his basement and didn't do a damn thing about it except let them go fuck you mm-hmm. I'm just saying Yeah. so the, uh, the overall well, arc of the that's Allison who should be in fucking jail yeah, I mean, what she did was just, it was atrocious. It was just atrocious. And then they just sort of like, oh, it's no big deal. She tortured two classmates. She shot them full of arrows with the intention of killing them. with knew, Knowing that they'd be tortured by her grandfather. Was it three torture? Did she participate in the torture of, of Styles, or was it just... Um... It was just Gerard. Well, as far as we know, it was just Gerard. We don't know that Allison didn't go down there. And we there's nothing that said whether Allison knew he was there or not. Oh, oh, so Isaac was apparently shot too. Isaac, oh, she, she knifed, knifed him. She knifed, she knifed Isaac. Him. Wow. I mean, right in the kidneys. She's an asshole. She deserves to be in magical jail. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, what is ultimately going to happen is Styles is going to have to make a decision in the sequel that he does he want to release the, the Gius that he's placed on them? Because he's the one who placed it, even though he doesn't realize that he's the one who did it. So he's going to work through this process of figuring out how he releases the Gius, and ultimately the, the mentor he picks up is going to be like, well, you placed it, baby. You placed the Gius. So you have to decide if you want to release it. 
And he's have to make a choice about how he feels about that because he called down that GS on them and he placed it on them all unintentionally, but he did it because he felt that it was the right, he felt it was righteous when he did. So, but so in the overall arc, that moment is the most important thing. That moment when he woke his magic and just stepped into a position of magical authority in the world, even though that won't come out, that that's what happened for a long time. <laughs> um, it also kind of amused me that he thought he could seek somebody out to fix it. And I'm like, ha ha ha, I hope, <laughs> I hope you try. <laughs> well, ultimately, that will ultimately come out is because that's that's Chris's threat, right? Is that I don't want to have to get anybody else involved. I'm trying to respect you, right? And you don't want to draw attention. It's ultimately they're going to realize there's no attention that Chris can bring to bear on the situation that can do anything about what Styles did. And that ultimately has to be up to Styles, what he's going to do. And he's the only one who can reverse it. So, um, I like the idea of like Witch going, um, dude, no, you're on your own. <laughs> I'm not messing with this. <laughs> We're not touching this with the 10 foot pole. What? No. <laughs> uh uh. Um. <laughs> So that moment is really pivotal for the sequel, <laughs> but, and so in, in the overall arc of the series, that moment is really critical because the whole, the whole sequel hinges on that one thing, him getting, he, him being so desperate that he woke his magic much earlier, but it was already there, but he was just doing little things with it, right? He hadn't done anything significant. And so that this moment when he steps into what he is, which would usually happen when he's much older, um, and no, he's not a spark. Somebody actually asked me that a couple times, Starles a spark. He's actually not a spark. I decided not to go that route. Um, so I'll say he's Claudius Delinsky's son. That's what he is. Um, it, it, so he stepped into that much earlier than he would have in life. And so because of actually all the magical world building I did for the sequel, the sequel is really, to me, very AU. Because exploring all of that, um, it's not just... I Conceivably, I could say that the ripples I'm exploring, but just by exploring the ripples of the first makes it continue to be a fix-it. But I think overlaying all of this magical world building, it, it's, it really starts to hit an AU vibe for me. So, like a magical, a different, like a not canon yeah, version. Because you put too much, you've got a lot of world building and that didn't exist in canon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when it comes to Unleash Your Demons and the um, the moment of change, the cat, it, because Tony chose to go back in time to the point that he did, all of his actions ripple out and they impact all these different characters at different points in their life. Um, while Bruce Banner still becomes the Hulk, he becomes the Hulk in a different set of circumstances. Circumstances that he can't blame himself for. So he's not living with self-loathing as well as the abuse he suffered as a child. And because he had immediate help, he recognized very, very quickly that Hulk is just a part of him. And that... Um, in a lot of ways, uh, he has the duty to protect Hulk as much as Hulk wants to protect him. Um, and also, he still has Betty, and, and Betty is um, a badass Daisy. And she <laughs> she's, um, she's, a, she's a 
she's the eye in his storm. And so you have those two um, with their very stable and, um, and um, consistent love for one another. Oh, you know, it, it's just, what's a total daisy mean? It just means she's all sunshine and rainbows. That, you know, she's just a little daisy in a field. And she looks like a delicate little thing. And she's not. And But basically, the super soldier serum woke up something terrible in Bruce. Um, it, But because Betty didn't have any of those psychological issues, um, she ended up pretty much like Captain America and um, she's just a little goody two shoes. So that that's all that tall Daisy thing means. Uh, it's just, she's all sunshine and sweetness and she can punch her head off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and I, I mean, when I read it, I took it because daisies are, they look like they could look perfect little flower, right? Perfect little flower, Daisy. But they're also very hardy under the surface, and they're relentless. Uh, yeah, they are. They are relentless. You can, you can, you can pluck a Daisy out of the ground, and then like next year, there's like five. <laughs> yeah, they're they're yeah they're the Hydra of the flower world or the weed world, depending upon how you look at it. Um, the Daisies are strong. But delicate looking, and they're resilient, and um, they look—they're unassumingly, yeah, they unassumingly perfect and delicate when they're anything but. She's the Iron Maiden, so. Um, so I use oh, I can use my other um, um, your catalyst does not have to be even on screen. But you do have to kind of, kind of at least, ex you don't have to call out, this is my catalyst. No, but it needs to be, if, if somebody could go back and look, what's the catalyst for change in this story? Um, they need to be able to pick it out, right? What went different? If they can't pick it out, something went awry because nobody can figure out how you diverged, right? So the catalyst, or at least approximately, right? So I would have said the, ca the catalyst for Unleash Demons was a snap. That was the event catalyst. The internal catalyst was Peter's death. And I, I wouldn't know that without Kira telling me that that internal catalyst was uh, that happened with the external catalyst, right? You have an external event, internal reaction. But I definitely identified that it was a snap, that it was a canon event was the catalyst for the story. Um, I tried to mirror his internal, um, his, his struggle with Peter's loss with um, the fact that the first thing he created when he landed was Spiderling. Spider, Spiderling, yeah. Yeah, and um, that, well, yeah, I mean, it and was... The and the climax of the story occurs around Peter. Right. Oh. So it kind of tracks, it tracks the whole thing. But if we look at DeNovo, the catalyst, for ch the catalyst, the change, the fix-it catalyst um, occurs off-screen. It's explained but it does occur off screen. And it's because the catalyst is actually the unexpected death of Rene Benoit. Um, so the story starts with Shepard's back in the office. Tony's been, he's been called into her office. He thinks he's probably in trouble because he knows things aren't going very well. And um, uh, he finds out, you know, that the op is off and that, uh, Benoit has been he was killed well some of this stuff is never really explained you're just left to infer it right which is that it 
jolted Jenny into um, looking at what she had done. And she, well, actually, it is explained because it goes into her point of view. What am I saying? That story had her point of view. Uh, and she she explains what, you know, in her point of view, what, what she went through and that she, all she had left was fixing the things she had screwed up. And one of the things she decided that she was going to address was Tony. Um, that she felt like she'd really screwed him over and she intended to screw him over and she knew that, right? So the, the catalyst for change occurs off screen um, from the non, uh, it's, it, and not in the antagonist's point of view. So he doesn't, e he doesn't even really know about most of that. He knows ultimately that Benoit died, but it, he doesn't, Tony's probably will never completely connect the dots about what exactly happened. Because, what she intended. Right, because he doesn't know. Um, now, Dwayne Pride knows a little bit more about that because he basically tells Tony, he gives him a heads up. If anybody ever asks you to go undercover like that, you say no. He doesn't tell him any more than that because Jenny confessed what her plans had been to Pride, and Pride keeps her confidence, but he still warns Tony, don't ever put yourself in that kind of position. And Tony connects a little bit of the dots there, but he doesn't want to dig into any more than that because it's, you know, it's not a good place to go. So that catalyst, um, that catalyst is really, it's really vital uh, as an impetus for change for the whole story. But because Tony is the protagonist, I have to, you have to look at what is the inciting event for him. And it, it could be, um, there's several moments that it could be, but for me, the moment when he is propelled into the story, when he is propelled into the change, is when he agrees to stay team leader and move to a different team. Yeah, when I, he, agree. When, I agree. When he agrees to step out of Dwayne, out, out of Gibbs' shadow, and not because everything Tony had been doing had been about preserving what Gibbs' team, preserving what Gibbs wanted, preserving, preserving, preserving. And Jenny asked him. What are you? Are you a federal agent who's here to do a job or are you Gibbs second in command? What is it? His loyal sec second in command. And Tony had to make a choice. And so the moment he actually made the choice to be a federal agent over Gibbs senior field agent, that was the inciting incident. That is when the story really began. Someone said something in the chat room that I want to talk about. She said that the Nebula thinks that she's a replacement for Peter. Of course she does. Um, Nebula doesn't believe. Um, the only source of love Nebula has had since her parents, since her mother was murdered, um, was Gamora. And Gamora is dead. Um, so she's alone. And all she has is this... Um, this man from earth who has agreed to avenge um, her and in to an extent Gamora by helping her kill Thanos that that's all she has left. And so while she accepts um, that Tony has some affection for her, she doesn't really believe that he loves her for herself until they're back in time. And she sees the difference between um, his reactions to her and to Peter. And she comes to realize that he loves her for who she is. And he's not trying to replace Peter with her, that it was never about that. But she had to come into that on her own. She had to grow into that knowledge um, because 
um, her parental, you know, her, her father figures in her life have not been good. I mean, so why would she trust that kind of, of love coming in her direction at the start? I, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't today. Thanos is really her only reference as far as a father figure goes because her own father was a hot mess, right? So why would she trust that immediately? She wouldn't. It, it, it wouldn't have been realistic because Nebula isn't the kind to latch on to somebody and hope for the best. If you see the difference between Gamora and Nebula in Guardians of the Galaxy, um, Gamora very quickly decided that this little crazy ass band of guardians were hers. <laughs> she was going to keep them all regardless of their problems. <laughs> she made herself a family. Gamora did that. She, so, okay. I'm and even the raccoon. I'm, I'm keeping all of you come here tree. <laughs> you know, yeah. This is what Gamora did, but Nebula They're didn't have that in her. They're a hot mess, but they're my hot mess. Yeah, they're, they might be a hot mess, but they're my hot mess. But Nebula didn't see the Guardians of the Galaxy and think to herself, yeah, I'm going to keep them. No, 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 no. But And she didn't even want to keep Tony. He was just useful. And he grew on her like a fungus, as she said. Uh, but she, having her immediately accept his paternal affection would have been disingenuous. Um, and it would have been a disservice to her character. So, coming out of the gate, she makes the assumption that any affection that he has for her is really transference because of the age difference between them and the fact that she was there when when Peter died. And if if you hadn't had that her her doubting that stuff, if you hadn't had her doubt and you hadn't developed her as a character, it would have been a failure of suspension of disbelief. And we've talked about that in another podcast. Um, because I mean the audience I don't think the audience would buy it, you know? I um, wouldn't have bought it. And that was part of the theme, Ellie, that that Thanos took from her repeatedly. And he could never have taken enough as far as he was concerned. Until there was nothing left of her but what he put in her. Um, but Tony um, didn't take anything from Nebula. He also didn't take her independence. Um, he didn't make assumptions about her thoughts. Uh, and so I just, I really, I wanted to see Nebula grow and change and... Um, I wanted her to stop being, I wanted her to have that moment when she stopped being Nebula, the daughter of Thanos, and became Nebula Colin Stark. That this is who she is. She's not playing a role. She's not, this, this isn't a facade. This is who she is. This is who she's chosen to become. And so, I hope that I accomplished that. You did. I think you absolutely did. I often say I write love letters to, to characters. I have to think that even though um, um, my main focus in Unleash Your Demons was Tony Stark, that 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 it was really a love letter to Nebula. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I see it. It's just it's so important that you know what it is you're trying to do, and um, 
And this is not a plotter pantser thing, right? You can pants and still be able to pick these kinds of elements out. Um, when you sit down to, to, do, to write a story that you don't actually know what your end game is going to be, yes, that, actually, that particular thing will give me hives. I readily admit if you start a story not knowing what your end game is going to be. But when a pantser sit I need to know. I need to know my end game. Uh, even if I'm going to pants, I need to know my end game. But if, if you're sitting down and you're pantsing something, um, you, you should at least be starting with your catalyst. What is your catalyst for change? And that is really vital that you identify and be really clear on, on what that catalyst is. Cause if you're not really clear about what the catalyst is, uh, you could you could wind up having problems, and it, again, it could be an external event. It could be an internal thing, an internal motivation, based on something that happens. Um, but something, and sometimes it is a canon event that is the catalyst. Um, now, this is just my read on it, but my read on Unleash Your Demons with the catalyst is she was able to completely use. Um, a canon event as the catalyst because we had no resolution. It was an open book, right? We were left on a cliffhanger. Yeah. So, so the canon event could be the normally, I would say normally canon events really can't be a catalyst for change, but in the case of a cliffhanger, it works perfectly, right? Because what else are you going to use? I mean, right. It's like we're on a fucking cliffhanger. We got to get off this cliffhanger. Somebody let me off the cliff. The catalyst for change is the thing that precipitated the cliffhanger. Someone so, get me a fucking rope. Right. <laughs> Just, I need a rope. So that is an unusual circumstance where you're dealing with a cliffhanger um, where your catalyst for change is a canon event. But usually it's going to be something that didn't happen in canon. Usually. Otherwise, Otherwise, it would have happened the way that way in canon, right? Um, the only element of of in game. Well, there are two elements in in game that really bother the fuck out of me. Um, obviously, the, the death of Tony Stark would be number one. Um, but only <sighs> he was righteous in his moment. He was righteous. I am it was, Iron Man. It was, it was righteous. A, I. It was a good end. Yeah, but it. <laughs> I have daddy issues, obviously. Um, and now Morgan doesn't have her daddy. And it... <sighs> it yeah. really... Mm, I'm really happy that... that Happy is going to buy her cheeseburgers. But I really do think her daddy should be there buying her cheeseburgers. <sighs> and, uh, that's, prime, that's prime material for a fix-it right there. Is uh, finding a way to save Tony so that Morgan can have her daddy. You know, or put Morgan with a different Tony or something, just something, something to enable her to, to not grow up without her father. Yeah, um, I really could have done without that whole Peggy being a participation trophy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my biggest, my biggest, and I can't fix this. I don't care to fix it, um, is I, that's why I would never write. I, well, I can't say never. Never write the only way I'd write an endgame fix it is if it was time travel. Um, and the problem is, I was so offended by the joke they turned Hulk into in and Thor. Let's just they turned Hulk and Thor into a fucking joke. Um, I found that so offensive that I, I don't even know what to do with myself. 
So, um, so that really bothered me. And so that, that would be, I actually would love to do a fix a time travel, fix it. Um, but I'd have it, it, it being, I, I, it would be hard for me to deal with the events of Endgame at all because they would just, they just make me, the Steve Rogers and the Hulk time, the Hulk st- stuff is just so offensive. Steve's and they travel totally back and ruined time. Thor's arc. Yes. I mean, Thor's whole arc, everything about it was about him coming into being a king. And they took that away. I'm just, no. I'm not on board with that. I mean, how do you take that away? It's, it's just so integral um, to his character. I just, his development as a character was so entrenched in his whole, even the movies I didn't like, It his his growth was it was apparent that he was changing, you know, that he was not the hothead that he had been in the first movie. And they just, they just, they took it away. And it's just, it's just upsetting. It's just terribly, terribly upsetting. Like, why did they do that? So, and, and I understand that they, the humor that Thor Ragnarok probably, I don't know if they could have anticipated what a success that movie would be. Um, considering that Thor the Dark World, I think, was generally pretty disliked. Um, and it had... The humor did not feel out of place. It was... I mean, because really, somebody like Bruce Banner being waking up on another planet and he's been out of his head for two years. While not funny, his reactions to being there and what was going on and the oddities of the whole thing, it was very amusing. Uh, they tried that to whole thing about Tony's pants being too tight. Yes, that was funny as hell. It's hilarious. And I, I, even in Infinity War, when they carried that through, one of the first things that Bruce says to Tony, he says, "You got to stop wearing your pants so tight." Um, <laughs> and Tony's like, "We'll get. We'll, we'll talk about that." Um, I mean, that was. That was gold. It was gold. But the thing is, they tried too hard in Endgame to carry that humor through, that humor from those jokes and stuff, and they weren't funny in the context that they put them in. There was a lot of wit in Ragnarok that does not exist in Infinity War and was totally missing in Endgame. Yes. It had no place. And the humor that they took those, some of those same kinds of themes and they just plunked them into a movie that didn't, it didn't fit. So I have a lot of what, what happened Thor, Thor. And I, I really don't like that Tony died, but as we've talked about when we had the Marvel rant podcast, he had a good end as far as, as, as good an end as you can have saving the entire fucking universe. Right. Yeah, I mean, a- he fulfilled he fulfilled that moment in Iron Man one when Jensen told him to 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 be good to to live a good life to so so really it was like Jensen saved the universe. Yeah, it was it was great. It was it was so sad that it, I mean I I'm not saying it, I think it's great that he's dead because I'm I don't and definitely if I were to write a fix it Tony Stark would live, but my impetus for writing a fix it wouldn't just be to save Tony Stark. I would be addressing that Thor and that, that Hulk situation way like, whoa, way ahead of anything else. That's just, just, because that's what's wrong, right? For me, that's what's wrong. And that's what I would feel compelled to fix. 
That's exactly right, Desert. They killed the Hulk and put Bruce in his body. Um, and that's never more clear than, than when the Ancient One knocks Bruce out of Hulk's body. And Hulk is just sitting there like a doll. It was just horrifying. And then that's when you realize that Hulk is dead. It's it's disgusting. But really, for me, be, that is terrible. The PTSD jokes and the fat jokes with Thor is terrible. But for me, the biggest issue that I have, and we did this in the podcast, for those of you who are thinking, I haven't heard a Marvel podcast bashing session because it didn't actually record. It was a, it was a terrible situation we had. And um, so it was lost to posterity <laughs> or whatever. But we um, had a good time. We had a good time. Um, it, uh, for me, it's the specter. Of Steve Rogers lurking throughout the entire MCU. Letting oh. all those terrible fucked up things happen. Because he was living his life. And you can't say it's not true. Because there he is sitting on that goddamn bench at the end. With and that shield. Thing, that he should not have. Thing, and all the things happen. They're, just, they're, they're in a world where all that shit happened. And Steve was there in the background. So, doing nothing while his best friend was tortured for 40 years by fucking Hydra. And I can't. I can't. Well, you know what? It's not Steve Rogers' past. It was Steve Rogers' future. What do you mean it's Steve Rogers' past? Okay, so Steve Rogers' past, he gets frozen. He's um, He stays frozen. He can't change that, right? Because that's their time travel theory. You can't change your own past. But when Steve Rogers goes back to the past and lives, he leaves the other version of himself on ice. So from the moment he lands in the past and gets himself a dance with Peggy Carter, he's living his future. So everything that happens after that is, is his future. And he should have been able to change it, even based on Marvel's fucked up time travel shit which I do not believe so he's a fucking asshole the thing is I don't know how that's one of the reasons why I wouldn't want to deal with Endgame I would have to probably do set any kind of fix that I did between Infinity Wars and Endgame because I I can't I can't deal with Steve Rogers making that choice I don't know how to fix that unless somebody travels back in time and hauls his ass back to the future no I mean that but the thing is I that would not it, it would be satisfying in a way to have somebody look at Steve and go, no, absolutely no. not. No, we are going to send somebody back to haul your ass back to the future. And he tries to protest and go, no, you can't undo this. You're like, no, nah, dude, I don't care what you say. We are going to go back. We're going to get your dumb butt and you are not going to do this. I'd probably make it be Bucky. You need to think this shit through. I think I'd definitely make it be Bucky. What were you thinking, Stevie? How dare you? But... So you have to, um, when it comes to picking your catalyst, um, actually, I, I mean, I, I don't have a lot of advice about that really, because the picking the catalyst should be really integral to your idea. Even if you're pantsing and you don't know what your end game is. Um, again, I, I think even if you're pantsing, you should understand where you're going, right? Like, Maybe you don't know what event you're dressing for, but you do know that you need pants. Um, but anyway, if you really don't know what your end game is going to be, that's fine. But you should understand your ideas should include the catalyst, the, the impetus for change. 
whether that's a person or that's an event or whatever, you, sh you should understand that piece of it. Um, so I guess we could talk about like really subtle catalysts versus um, stuff that's a little bit more in your face or using people as catalysts. Um, there's a lot of different but, approaches to find a catalyst. Is it, it's really important questions? to recognize what you want to fix. To say explicitly, I want to fix this. And then you pick your moment. Where is the best place I can situate myself in the canon to fix this shit? <laughs> yeah. If I want to save Morgan from her daddyless existence, my, my choice, it depends on how I want to do it what you're going to do. Um, if I want to prevent the events of Endgame, I stick it right, right, right where I did. Then Morgan never exists. At least that version of Morgan never exists. I mean, you could say it's fate that Tony Stark has a daughter named Morgan. Um, and that somebody else could be the birth giver. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, that always, considering that I understand, considering that I understand human reproduction, um, I always kind of a little bit make a face at the idea of the exact, per you know, it, when the, once the moment of conception changes, it's right. not the same. It's not the same person. So for me, it falls down a little bit on the suspension of disbelief aspect. But you know, if you're working like with eternal souls and all that kind of stuff, you could you could definitely go there. But no, if you don't know what you're going to fix, um, you could. Yeah, even if you're a pantser, you got to understand what you're going to fix. Even if you don't know exactly the path you're going to take to get there, you got to know what you're going to fix. And you have to understand what the device is that you're... And in that order, what I'm going to fix and what is my device for kicking off change? And is it a person? Is it an event? Is it... Um, what is it? What is the thing? And if anybody has any specific questions about... Because I could throw, you know, we could pick a fandom and talk about catalysts, but, you know, like what kind of catalyst you would want. Because well, it's actually more along the, the, the I think it would be a better question with, is, are there elements in particular canons that you would like to fix? And what catalyst points or what points would we pick to fix those events if we were doing it? Right? Yeah. So... SGA, Carson Beckett's morals. I explore that a lot. Um, because like when I first got into Stargate fandom, I kind of ignored it because it was just easier to ignore. But the older I've gotten, the less I'm able to ignore it. Yeah. I And in interim, Carson ends up staying on Earth. And it also happens in Cold My Coffee where um, they're just not going to entertain any of that shit. No, no. <laughs> We're not doing any of that. Fuck it. No, Beckett, you're staying on Earth. Um, but in Finding Atlantis, Beckett is on um, uh, he's on the city and he's done some really fucked up things. Uh, and so choosing to deal with him. I don't know how we would get best from um, we, how we would get um, Elizabeth McCord on to Atlantis. Um, as Richard Woolsey's replacement because she's got three kids 
and she's got a husband. And the only way she goes to Atlantis is if, you know, her kids and husband come with her. Um, which means it would be, it wouldn't be a fix it. It would be a canon divergent AU. That could, well, that could still be a fix it. It depends upon what your fix it. Um, if her husband's dead. <gasps> well, I'm just saying, I mean, just because you go I'm get sorry. a quarter. Oh my god. <laughs> what I'm just saying. But you know, you could. There are um you, you That's can not have a spoiler. A, what's not a spoiler? Is that a fucking spoil he's not dead in canon, is he? Because I haven't caught up. I'm behind. Dude, I haven't watched Madam Secretary since the first season. So if I'm giving any spoilers for Madam Secretary, it's for the first season. And I, you know, you just should catch the fuck up. If it's for the current season, it's completely coincidental. So, you know. Okay, no, he's not dead. I just checked. I just checked the fandom wiki. He's alive. So what, so what the hell are you talking about? It's a spoiler. Whatever. I'm moving on. Um, I'm just saying that you can. You can. You there there are ways you can do things now, but the thing is, is if you're if you do something different with Elizabeth McCord's life so that she ha doesn't have a husband and kids, if the story is about her, it's probably not a fix it, right? If the story is about SGA, you could get her on the city as a as part of a canon divergent situation because a lot of fix its are canon divergent. Um, but the question then becomes, if she's that different, why aren't you just using an OC? We're back to that question. Why aren't you just using an OC? Um, so Carson and his morals. Um, so I would address Carson. When I chose to do... Now this isn't a this isn't a canon divergent situation. It's not a fix it situation because it is a it's a Alec Tony is a shepherd AU. Um, but I address it. He never gets to go in Atlantis Codex. He's never going to go because um, there's that situation with he reacts badly with the unexploded ordnance in that man's leg, and um, John questions, does this guy even have the experience? He makes the he makes the statement to. Um, General O'Neill, he says, I don't usually, I've never been in a command before where we staff for the best case scenario. Um, so he makes that point to O'Neill and O'Neill kind of looks at him funny, goes, well, why would you bring a researcher in as your chief medical officer unless you were not expecting to have any problems? Um, so that whole, um, he never goes in Atlantis Codex. So that's how I address it there to prevent him from going. So it depends upon what you're trying to accomplish when you're addressing his morals. It, do you want, is your fix about there being some consequences for some of the shit that he pulled? Then you would probably position it around one of the things he did going wrong. And John or Rodney or somebody saying, wait a minute, this isn't okay. We need to do something about this. If you just don't want to deal with his bad morals on the city, you just prevent him from being able to come but it all depends upon what you're trying to accomplish so just Carson's bad morals um, is a problem but that doesn't address what you're trying to accomplish so it's really important when you're trying to work on what should my catalyst for a fix it be be whatever you want to fix but fixing Carson's morals is a little, I'm going to say it's nebulous because do you mean make Carson a better person or do you mean get him off the city? 
Do you mean give him some consequences? What is it that you're trying to fix with that? Because just fixing his morals, it's a little bit vague. <laughs> yeah, they could all use a lesson in ethics. Uh, yeah. Because, I mean, do you want to send him to a class? I mean, so this is where it's really important that you understand what you're trying to do. Um, but when we're introduced to Elizabeth Weir, um, the first thing out of the gate, she does. And I love, I really love Jessica Steen as Elizabeth Weir, but um, she did something in the backdoor pilot, basically, of Atlantis um, that cemented her character as um, kind of fucked up. Because she negotiated with the Wraith and divided the galaxy up and basically agreed that they could keep slaves for, from just their part. They couldn't have slaves from her part. Yeah, that's messed up. Did I, what did I say? Did I not say gold? What did I say? Did Wraith. Oh, well, yeah, the gold. Sorry. Um, she negotiated with the gold um, to separate the Milky Way galaxy into um, uh, basically territories. And um, she basically decided that the gold could enslave fucking half of the galaxy. Um, this, is, this is so long as they didn't take slaves from the planets that Earth had claimed as their own. That is really messed up. So yeah, she's so you learn the, the the first thing you learn about Elizabeth Weir is that she's not a good person. So I missed if there were anybody else had any fix this, but if if anybody talk about what you want to fix. If you tell me you want to fix Carson's fucked up morals, that's a completely different storyline. Cause like how do you that would to me, if you want to fix Carson's fucked up morals, if that's what you want to fix. That's a storyline about Carson becoming a better person. And that means he has to recognize that he's fucking up, that he's making decisions that are ethically unsound and he needs to, um, he needs to fix himself. So that's a character driven fix it. Right. Now I personally wouldn't want to write a Carson Beckett centric centric story. Um, I don't like him enough as a character to want to engage in that. Um, so I need a little bit more specifics about what you're trying to, what so maybe what might be a catalyst for him the whole thing on Hoff actually should have been a catalyst for him realizing that he shouldn't be fucking around with this kind of stuff right it should it should right. have been it the fact that it wasn't says volumes it says basically that he was just as desperate to fight back the race as the people on Hoff were it says that it's just that he should have learned a lesson from how wrong it went and he didn't, because he went and then went and made it worse with Michael. Um, and I don't know what to do with that, right? Right. So if you're if you're trying to do a character driven fix it for um, Carson Beckett, um, definitely I would say a good catalyst event is Hoff, and you could make him a very um, you could ha write a lot of a lot of change into into the canon from him choosing to do things differently um what i'll say about elizabeth's um breakup video um it's not classy but that came after the whole gold thing she'd already broken up the galaxy into into slave land by the time she broke up with simon on a video 
I actually don't think that breaking up because people break up with people be via text and video. Um, they ghost people all the time. I don't think it makes somebody. I mean, it's ugly ass behavior, but it's not. I mean, somebody can be shitty. Somebody be shitty in relationships and actually be very effective professionally. The problem is for me, for her as a character, she was not effective professionally. And she was shitty in her personal relationships. So she she was actually very bad at relationships. I mean, it was obvious that she did not and you know, and they which is really bad writing on their part because how could she be an ambassador and be so shitty with people? Yeah, it really was bad characterization. I agree. It was. I'm not saying it was good that she broke up with him that way. I'm just saying people can do really terrible things in their personal relationships and still be very effective professionally. Okay. I just don't think that that was her irredeemable moment. I'm pretty sure it was when she yes agreed to the enslavement to half the fucking galaxy. I think that the her breaking up with Simon on a video kind of pales in comparison. Yes, I agree. To agreeing to the enslavement of millions. Sanctioned slavery to me is much worse than ghosting her. <laughs> Just saying. Her, Just her fiance in a video. I mean, it, there are, are plenty of legitimate reasons why you would break up somebody in a video. <laughs> what if they're an asshole and you're afraid of them physically? I'm not saying Simon was. I'm just saying there are plenty of reasons why you might break up with somebody in a situation where they, where they can't get to you afterwards or get to you during. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that makes it. But actually, and you could write a redemption arc for a character around them making bad relationship decisions over and over and over again. It's like, you know, I have a tendency to break up with people via video. Um, At least she wasn't trying to kill him like Sam Carter. (laughs) Yeah. That can be a redemption arc, right? I actually see that kind of thing in redemption arcs for characters all the time, which is the character goes, I'm terrible in relationships. I've treated my past girlfriends and boyfriends terribly. And honestly, when you're writing realistically flawed characters, sometimes they've done shitty things in past relationships. That's just reality. Um, There's a line in Finding Atlantis that I'm surprised no one called me out on is when um, Rodney told John that he was just going to make Katie mad at him so she'd break up with him. (laughs) <laughs> it just seemed like the kind of thing Rodney would do <laughs> I mean I, but it, it's it shitty is, it is it's shitty. shitty it's shitty ass behavior it is shitty behavior I mean my brother he moved to he moved from California to Georgia um, once to break up with his girlfriend <laughs> <laughs> that's I mean, this a is, little much this is how allergic to confrontation he is and how she, I have to say, she was a bit of a nutter, okay? She was very, <laughs> she's a little stalkery, right? So she would, de- like, call him and he'd say, I'm, I'm not home. And she'd say, I'm outside your house. I know you're home. It's like, wow. okay. That was her kind of behavior. But she, and she was a little unhinged, okay? So that was my impression of her. But he hated confrontation. So he tells her he's going on vacation, right? That's what he tells her. I don't know that's what he told her. He tells her he's going on vacation and he'll call her when he gets back, right? He gets there he moves to georgia which i knew he was moving to georgia right and he says if you hear from my girlfriend um you know just tell her i'll call her soon i'm like didn't you break up with her you moved to georgia he goes well i'm gonna break up with her i'm like you didn't do it before you left he goes well i didn't tell her i was moving i was like oh my god right so (laughs) i think it's with her personality type he's an asshole Oh, he's a total asshole. The thing is, he sent her a letter. He didn't even do it on the phone. 
He sent her a letter. <laughs> and he said, sent her a Dear Jane letter. <laughs> yeah. I said, I moved to Georgia, right? Well, guess who had to deal with her? You? Was it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> she showed up crying on my couch. It was it was like, oh, oh my God. I had to deal with my brother. I'm, I'm, I'm having to break up with her. I, I, I never even liked her. And here I'm having to be sympathetic and make her tea um, because he broke up with her. He moved and he, and I asked him, I said, why did you really move to Georgia? And he says, well, I just didn't see a relationship going anywhere and I couldn't figure out how else to get out of it. And I was like, are you fucking serious? I'm absolutely serious. He moved, he moved to Georgia because he didn't want to be with her anymore. So I'm like, whatever, dude. But this is the same guy who he gets a new job and he doesn't want to tell his boss that he's quitting. So he just starts the new job. I'm like, well, did you tell your, you, you, he says, well, I haven't quit yet. I'm going to see how this goes for a couple of weeks and then I'll quit. I was like, how is he working two jobs at the same time? He was on vacation. So from I was one. For now. Oh my no. God. <laughs> no, 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 no. He said he went, he, he filed for vacation leave. Okay. For two weeks of vacation. And he goes and works for, um, okay. I'm going to put just in the chat room and put the name, the names of the two companies and it's going to horrify you guys. <laughs> So you went on vacation from the first one to work for the second one. Reverse that. He went on vacation that from the second hilarious. one to work for the first one. Yeah. Oh, oh. That is hilarious. Mm-mm-mm. So I was like, he's like, well, I'm not sure I'm going to like it. I'm like, is that how that works? And then I was like, I'm not sure if this is you being this non-confrontational or if this is like white male privilege in action. I'm uh, really not both. sure. Probably both. Yeah, he's that non-confrontational, and he's that used to things going his way. Um, and you, three months later, he quit the second job because he got a better job with the third company. Yeah, that's that's totally white male privilege right there. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. So so people do really detestable things all the time, right? And then they eventually grow up and get married and they deal with um they deal with their um the, their shitty relationship behaviors, right? They they go they get in therapy, they deal with the they deal with the shit they've done wrong, um, and they deal with the detestable stuff that they've done in the past. But a, a lot of real people have done shitty breakups. I do think my brother kind of is like in in a special league of shitty breakups, but especially since not only did he break up with her in a really shitty way and spend a lot of money to do it, but he left a family member he supposedly cared about holding the bag with a crazy stalker girlfriend who knew where she lived. So yeah. just saying. Not great. Not great. Um, Tony Stark uh, is a womanizer. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, when I went into Unleash Your Demons, I, I kind of wanted to address that. Um, and one of the ways that I felt like his emotional landscape would have changed on that subject was his exposure to Nebula and to see um, the ramifications of Nebula being um, abused and misused um, by Thanos. Um, so that when he returns to Earth, he kind of um, 
has a moment where he thinks to where he just realizes that he hasn't been a good person um, when it comes to um, his relationships with women. And so he apologizes to Pepper for um, the inappropriate behavior. He, you know, that he, that she was his employee and that the fact that she knew that he was um, profoundly sexually attracted to her um, because he had told her repeatedly um, was terrible, ugly ass behavior. And he acknowledged it and apologized for it because I felt like that was important for his growth and for him to acknowledge that he um, hadn't been a good person to Demaya Hansen as well. Um, and um because in a lot of ways, by the time he came back, he, you know, he, he viewed Nebula as his daughter. And so he had, he had a frame of reference that he'd never had before. And I think that sometimes a character needs that kind of frame of reference. But you know what? A decent human being shouldn't need a frame of reference. You shouldn't be nice to women because of your mother or your sister or your wife or your daughter. Um, you should just be good to women, period. <laughs> you know? But that's not realistic. And I wanted to address his past behavior. Um, I felt like that was part of his journey. That he had done some, you know, pretty ugly things to people. Um, using them for sex. And because uh, one of the first things we see from Tony Stark in Iron Man 1 is him sleeping with a reporter and having Pepper dismiss her. <laughs> Are you fucking serious? <laughs> Yeah. So it, it, good people, characters we like, do shitty things. Tony Dinozo is also a womanizer in Canada. Right. Um, although the male writers seem to think that a womanizer is attractive. Right. Which is one of the reasons why we tend to, as part of our character fixes, is un, un, pull, pull that out a little bit. So um, part of writing a character who's real and resonates as real is that sometimes they do shitty things and sometimes they say shitty things and they have to apologize and mean it. Okay. Um, that's part of being a human being and perfect characters don't ever do anything wrong. So they don't have to apologize for it. And perfect characters don't have flaws and we can't relate to them. So can you write an arc that fixes weir? Yes. Could you write an arc that fixes Carson? Yes. Um, and so it's, it, so the way the, the, and I'm not criticizing the way the request was phrased about fixing Carson's shitty morals, but I actually think what they mean is consequences for Carson's shitty morals, which is different than fixing Carson's shitty morals. Now just, I'm just, like, I'm inferring. Make him pay for the fucked up shit that he did or make sure he doesn't do the fucked up shit that he was going to do. Right. Um, I'm inferring what you meant, but. Most of us, the phrasing makes me think that it's more about consequences or potentially preventing rather than um, actually fixing his morals, which is a completely different story, which is why it's important to understand what you're trying to do. So, and when you're looking for a catalyst for your fix, like what is a good catalyst to make this fix happen? Um, it's important that you understand what you're fixing because if you want consequences for Carson's morals, that's not the same thing as fixing his morals. I hope that made sense. Um, somebody just asked me a question and DM. Hold on. Okay. Um, One of the things I did with Nebula um, in the in the in the body autonomy, um, in the um, 
is that most of her life she's been taking orders from men. Um, Thanos, Ronan. Um, and I, I wanted her to have a moment where she acknowledged that, um, that the male authority didn't mean much to her, which is where that whole thing, that smile from me nebula thing came from in the, in the, in the press conference. Um, because women, a lot of times we, we smile through a situation because we don't want to cause a scene. We don't want to be unpleasant. We're taught to be, um, to be nice. Um, and I wanted to make it clear that Nebula's, that Nebula's wasn't, um, that she wasn't paying a price to be on earth. And that price, um, that being pretty isn't the price you pay to exist. And that being pleasant isn't the price you pay to exist. And I, I wanted Nebula to have that, um, that part of her characterization. I thought it was really, it was really powerful. Um, because she, did, she both for healing her own past, but also because she doesn't have that frame of reference for expected earth behaviors. Um, yeah. So, you know, being confronted with in a, parallels to her own life, but in a different context, um, allowed her to just say like no to stuff. I'm not going to smile for you. I'm well, unamused. Yeah. And Melinda's saying like she was a whore. Like he was asking her to smile um, like she was on display to, um, to be purchased. And um, because Pepper was of the mindset that she should have ignored it or um, acknowledged it and offered him a small smile to keep the conversation where it needed to be and to not create a scene. Because that's what Pepper grew up with. Mm -hmm. So I wanted that moment between those three women to kind of um, demonstrate the differences of between Melinda pepper and, and Nebula. So that kind of characterization plays heavily um, into your, into your work. Cause it, it helps you resonate your themes and your central premise. And only should not, only demons is mostly about um, uh, grief and healing and body autonomy. Everybody needs more body autonomy. It's like most universes of that nature. Um, they don't. They don't have a lot of respect for people's body autonomy. Um, so the question I got DM is: Is the catalyst your first plot point? Maybe, but not it necessarily. It doesn't have to be. Yeah. All the plot point is is it's the thing that happens. A plot point that leads to the next thing that happens. So it is your critical path. If, if you think of it in project management term, plot points are your critical path. They're the thing that happens that is the, but a catalyst isn't necessarily even a plot point, right? It's because if, especially if it's an internal moment um, that leads to your right. first plot point, unleash your demons. The first plot point is style saying he's not leaving them behind and getting hurt. You just use my title for your story. Oh, <laughs> Unobstructed views. We're talking, yeah, yeah. In unobstructed views, the first plot point isn't the catalyst, and the catalyst comes first because, and it's because it's an internal moment. It's an internal motivation. That moment when he realized what's going on, but the first time he acts, where he, that that leads to the next thing that happens is when he says, "I'm not leaving them behind." So that's the first plot point. It's him saying, "I'm not leaving without Erica and Boyd." 
to me, that's, the, that's what I would, that's what I define as the first plot point is Eric, Styles refuses to leave. That's what I wrote down. Styles refuses to leave Aragorn Boyd behind. So my catalyst actually takes place off screen. Because my moment is at several hours. My first plot point is several hours after the snap. Right. So first plot point could be your catalyst, depending upon what your catalyst is and how it feeds into your plot. And does it lead directly to the next thing that happens? Um, plot points should string together its chain of events. That's just that's what they watched are. If you Sliding Doors, if, if, if you've done your homework, um, you will know that... Um, that uh, her characters, um, the catalyst between the two, the di the divergent points between the two um, timelines is her missing um, subway, the train, the door yeah. is shut on her, and on one on one pass she gets on the train, and on the other she misses it, um, and that is the catalyst in um, that particular movie, and that it doesn't take place immediately. It's it's several plot points in. Um, and, and on the path where she gets on the train, things go apace. And if she misses the train, she goes home and she finds out that her man is cheating on her. And things take a drastic turn. Um, so you, I want to, I'm going to, I don't want, I'm not trying to pick, I'm absolutely not trying to pick on this question or this suggestion in, in the chat room, but I do want to pull out it some more because it leads to lots of questions you should ask yourself about your story, which is still stuck on the, fixing Carson and his shitty morals. Um, so let's say that the actual fix you want is not actually fixing Carson, but it's consequences for Carson's actions. So then you have to ask yourself, which, which actions do you want there to be consequences for? Do you want the Michael thing to blow up? Hoff? The experimentation? I mean, if you just are really frustrated around, and this is kind of how you can tease out an idea, is like, I want, I want Carson to have some consequences for his actions which actions okay and is it a fix for carson or is it a fix for the people who are impacted by his shitty actions so conceivably it's a it's a fix for the people who are impacted by his shitty actions he's going to get some consequences which means we don't ultimately care what happens to carson okay so if carson gets you know cycled back to earth and he has to pace, face the review board um and then he has some sort of he maybe he gets his license suspended i don't know Okay, but most of that would be like side notes. Once, once the meat, once you get into the catalyst, okay, you have your catalyst, and somebody, let's say your catalyst is, um, let's say it's the Michael situation. Carson wants to do this experiment. Rodney doesn't want him to do it. Rodney says no. Rodney and John are talking. Maybe that's now having a chat about the ethics of the whole thing and about if it's successful. I mean. <laughs> We're talking about having to medicate millions of people. Does this seem like a good idea? Um, and let's say that the, the catalyst is them having a conversation where they say, no, we're not going to do this. We don't want to go forward with this. Okay. So your first plot point might be that they file a, a complaint with the SGC and say that they do not want this experiment to happen. Or maybe maybe your first plot point is Rodney tries to stop the experiment as a chief, chief science officer and Elizabeth overrules him. Okay, so you have to understand what it is you're trying to fix and what you want your what, what the point of your fix is going to be, even if you don't know the end game exactly. And this is a good example of how to tease that out is you've got this nebulous thing that could mean about 10 different things. And you have to decide what it is the most that you want to do. 
So she says in the chat room, um, I think it's more that, that Rodney and the others don't recognize that with Carson, it was the fact that the death of half of a civilization didn't phase Carson to the degree of one woman. Here's the thing about that. The death of one person is a tragedy. The death of thousands is a statistic. It's ugly. But it's actually pretty common for a person in a situation like that to focus on the death of the one person that he knew very well versus the, the deaths of thousands of people he didn't know at all. Is it ugly? Yes. But that's human nature. It's it's Grief how you compartmentalize. Yeah, but uh, well, I haven't seen. I've only seen that episode twice, and I haven't seen it in a long time. I've only seen it once because I, I, I didn't enjoy it all that much. Um, I only even ever rewatched Hoff. I didn't enjoy it that me, the epi, the episode about the Hoffins. I didn't. I didn't enjoy it the first time, and I only rewatched it because I wa I was writing something that was occurring around that episode. Um, but as I recall. Carson was not ambivalent about the death of half the civilization. Once he realized the death, he, he didn't, as I recall, he didn't think the vaccine was ready and the Hoffins went ahead and dis dispersed it once they realized yeah. what the death toll would be. So yes, he participated in creating that vaccine. Um, I have way less of a problem with what happened on Hoff than I had with Michael. Um, but the situation, the Michael the Hoff situation was Hoff horrific. It was it was it was it was disgusting what they did. What was their end game? What was their end game with that? The only thing their end game could have possibly been would have been a biological plague. There's no way they could have dosed those assholes daily. It's it, it's impossible. That yeah, they couldn't have dosed them daily, all of them, and they certainly certainly. And the thing is, they're also talking about it's like a really bad um, like civilization wide episode of. Um, of the Truman Show. I mean, you, you'd be dosing them with this stuff daily and lying to them about who they are and where they came from and giving them a structured reality. And honestly, death is better, in my opinion. It's, and it's seriously, who was going to point out to them that, uh, here's the thing, like 99.9% .9 of the race are male. I mean... So, so what are they going to do? Yeah. They're, they are going to breed them right out of existence, right? Because they're not going to reproduce without any females. So, and, and I don't think that realistically they should be allowed to breed with women from Pegasus because what would come out? Yeah, do they have to keep dosing the babies? And the thing is, it, it was it was poorly conceived from the beginning. The whole idea because they would have to keep. They don't have the the pop the staff to deal with millions of wraiths, right? Which meant what they were doing was the intention all along was to create a large pool of people to keep experimenting on. Which once they gave them back their rational ancient minds is disgusting. It's it, it's disgusting. Taylor was experiment, experimented on after she was born. She was given wraith traits as part of an experiment, just like or maybe maybe it was her father, but she's not half wraith. She has some wraith genetics from an experiment done on her family, which isn't the same thing as one of her family members getting it on with a wraith. And because the the cure wasn't permanent. 
I, yeah, it's just it, that it not being permanent is it made it untenable. Once they realized it was not going to be permanent, it for starters they shouldn't have. I don't think they should have gone down that path. But once they realized it was not a permanent fix, they should have scrapped the whole thing because they they did not have the manpower to dose wraith all to the dose time. Millions. Of it's life. just it's just absurd. They didn't they didn't have the manpower really to dose a hundred of them on a daily basis and keep and make sure they all stayed dosed because all you need is one of them not getting a dose. You know. And I mean, seriously. What it, even if they did let them breed with uh, with the women of Pegasus, what woman in Pegasus would actually want to go to bed with a fucking wraith? Yeah, no matter what they look like. There's a there's a Chronicles of Riddick story. I don't remember which one. Um, where uh, Riddick doesn't want to deal. He's going to deal with his necromongers, right? Is nope. Um, and his solution for them is to find them a planet. And put them on it because he recognizes that they are warm. They are they are warring. The rest of the universe is not going to be sympathetic to them because they destroy planets and they enslave people. Well, I mean, they brainwash. They don't exactly enslave them. They brainwash them into compliance. Okay, so that's not a very sympathetic group of people. They can't just plunk them down on a populated planet and say, "Do you want to integrate with these people?" So the ultimate solution for him, once those who were intent upon going into the underverse were in the underverse, was to find them a planet and let them start their own civilization. And at the end of the story, they had actually started breeding. They had some of the women had actually become pregnant. So um, you kind of have the same situation with the wraith of they would have to recognize that nobody in Pegasus is going to want to deal with these people. doesn't matter whether they know who they are or not. Right. And also, and there are not you know, enough race females for them to breed. And because they can't guarantee what's going to come out, is the baby going to be a wraith or not? Does the baby have to be dosed? And who is going to agree to that kind of testing? So it's disgusting. Okay. So, the, but let's set aside, let's say you want to deal with season one because Michael season two, and you want to deal with season one where Carson's on the city. He's got shitty morals and they are stuck with him. And you want to deal with that. Okay. I would still say that you, that angle, you got you got to figure out what your angle is because it can't just be fixing Carson. So the way I would approach it, right? If I wanted to deal with season one, and I wanted to get Carson out of having the authority to make those kinds of choices and fuck things up, is I would probably play the card of John takes control of the expedition based on the expedition charter, and that once he does. And maybe he does it around something that Carson does. Maybe something Carson does really bothers him and that Elizabeth enabled, you know, allowed him and enabled him to do this. Um, maybe it's, maybe it is the thing on Hoff. Maybe it bothers John to such a degree. And maybe the catalyst is a conversation with Rodney or it could be a catalyst, a conversation with Dr. Biro. It could be a conversation with another doctor or a scientist who finds what's going on really disgusting. And it maybe it gives John a wake up call and he takes control of the expedition. And you then, the consequences of that, what would the consequences of that be of John being in charge and making um, Carson step down as chief medical officer uh, and putting another doctor in as CMO and, and, you know, 
you know, he'd, they'd have to insist on tighter controls on what Carson was experimenting on and that there'd be more peer review of his work and, you know, all kinds of things that come out about what had been going on, what Carson had been doing and what the ramifications would be uh, for them out there in Pegasus with no way to get rid of Carson. It's like, how do they deal with that situation? How do they deal with Elizabeth? How do they deal with Carson? How do they deal with that fallout? You know, how do you make it a good situation and a fix for things and you could ripple that into a fix. Maybe they have less problems because I don't remember exactly where the Hoff thing happens in season one. Um, but you could you could ripple a fix out into um, some th things going better in season one for you know the way things things ended. You could prevent some people from getting killed. You know, so you could do. Well, that's not a fix for Carson's morals, but it is a fix. Um, but here would be an interesting fix for Carson's morals. Um, Carson um, doesn't really um, grasp the um, ramifications of his experiments. Right. But what if during the first month or so on Atlantis, he comes across the research that makes the wraith, that made the wraith, that the ancients actually made the wraith in their pursuit of ascension? Because the wraith is half a radis and half ancient. Um, what if he comes across that experiment data and has a moral crisis and recognizes himself in the logs of the scientist that is, is detailing this experiment and he sees the path that he's on and he decides to make a different choice for himself? That would be a character-driven fix for Carson. I think that would be great. And it's a good catalyst. Um, and as the chief medical officer, he could be very impactful um, by getting having his ethics better grounded. Um, Which would make uh, him less likely to participate in the situation on Hoth. And less likely to create the retrovirus that turns John into a bug. Yeah. So it's all a matter of what is it exactly that you want to do. And... Um, <sighs> You and that's so you could take that kind of statement, the statement about you know, fix Carson's shitty morals, obviously, a variety of directions. With is it a character fix for, for Carson? Is it a fix for the expedition in season one? Is it a fix for the expedition in season two? Is it a consequences story where it's kind of salty and you are exploring the consequences of them letting this go on for so long? In which case, honestly, the fact that it went on that long. Um, winds up being consequences for a lot of people. It, that ripples, right? If you're giving consequences to Carson for something that happens in season two, um, especially if it's after the fact, it has impact on Weir, it has impact on the SGC, because there have been mission reports that talked about the stuff that Carson had done, and nobody had blinked about it, right? So the fact that this had gone on to the degree that it had gone on, um, as if you're going to do a consequences story, it it ripples across um, multiple people in the story. And so you have to really decide what your focus is going to be, what it is you want to get out of it. Um, but if the fix is Carson and his morals, I like what Kira came up with because that fixes his morals problem. That is a fix for his morals. His morals gets fixed. So on that mission statement, purely on the face of it, um, give him a wake up call and he sets himself on another path. And I like that catalyst too. Does anybody else have any questions about fix it catalysts? 
I don't, but you know, I'm. Well, you I'm but you know what they are. <laughs> yeah, you are. <laughs> well, I. I don't think he had any decision making on who on on Keller being hired. I think um the IOA sent Keller out. No. I don't rem- Keller came out with the second wave. Apparently the movie Sliding Doors is on Amazon Prime. For those of you who have Amazon Prime would be interested in watching Sliding Doors. I highly recommend it. It's a it's a masterclass on um divergence and um and how that will ripple out. That legitimately makes no sense, Sadria. If that's and because number one, she's too young to be a doctor anyway. But to say that she'd been out in she doesn't she's not part of the expedition until season four. How could she be part of the expedition originally? Like they're saying she's a background character for four years, except she's just twenty six, which means she would have graduated medical school in um, her early in, in her mid teens in order to do an internship. In order to get the surgical experience that she's got to be the surgeon that she is. Which means she started college at nine. And she's not written that smart. She's not written. She's not in it. She's not in it. As far as I can tell, she never even had an appearance in SG-1. Um, which, and her first, very first appearance um, in the in Oh, the I'm franchise. not doubting you that they said it. I'm just saying it's stupid. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, but Doogie Hauser was a genius, and while Car- and while Keller is is, they didn't put her on McKay's level. They didn't write her on McKay's level of of. So I don't see how she could have possibly have been as young as she is to have all the experience she was supposed to have as a surgeon and been on the city since the beginning. I would hope by that point he would still not be being called Doogie Hauser. I mean. I would I would hope that Dr. Hauser would 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 be no longer allowing anybody to call him but maybe his mom, Doogie. One would hope. But we don't see Keller till season four. So I just don't see her at her age. That means she was twenty-two or twenty-one when she left Earth, a seasoned surgeon at twenty-one. They didn't write her that smart. She didn't become a she didn't no, she didn't become a doctor when she was 24. It says that in her bio, it says she earned her bachelor's degree before she was 18. Um, after she okay. spent six years in medical school and became a doctor. So that's 24, 23, 24. Um, so how was a, she when she was on Atlantis? I thought, she, I, thought she, I thought you were right that she was 26. Because otherwise, if she was out there... If she graduated, if she became a doctor at 24. That's just a doctor. That's not the surgeon training either. <laughs> um, so let's like, like, so I said, let's say she's a doctor at 24, and we give her two years of surgeon training. So she's 26, which means you count internships. I mean, she'd have been 27 or 28 when the expedition started, and in and in her 30s when season four happened, which is not accurate to the she's obviously not that old. So that is supremely terrible bad writing. This episode takes place 
only like one or two episodes after Carson's death. So it's it's actually in my head canon that Keller came to the city um sometime after the the um the whole Caldwell snaking. So I don't doubt that she was on the city when Carson was there, but I don't believe for a minute that it's possible for her to have gone through her surgical rotation and her graduation. If she graduated with her bachelor's at 18, she did six years of medical school. Um, then she would have her surgical rotation and her internship genius or not. Um, being a genius doesn't obliterate the fact that there are time requirements for internships. You can be smart as fuck and you still have to do this much interning as a doctor and you have to do this much training as a surgeon. You know, it's it's not about your intellectual capacity. It's about um, time spent doing something. And I just don't think, number one, she's probably too damn young to have been a surgeon to begin with. But even if we allow that, she sure as hell didn't leave Earth at 22 a fully trained surgeon. Mm. Surgical surgical residency is a uh, uh, no. There's just no way. I mean, it just isn't. It just isn't. She didn't, I don't. It could be, and if if that line, it, there's a possibility this is like an adapted script. That they had somebody else in mind that was already on the expedition to step in, and that they didn't really adapt the script very well for plugging in a different character. But whatever, she was not on the expedition. It doesn't make sense. So um, she's not even second wave, right? She's, if she's season four, that's. Maybe she came in near the end of season three or maybe. I yeah, mean, she's I just... in the last, she's in the last episode of season three, but you know, she doesn't, she's not, doesn't make any sense. So yeah. Well, you know, they inserted their Barbie character. So, um, so that the nerd could get the girl. And they could have their nerd cheerleader fantasy thing going on. Um, but, and we were just expected to swallow it. So, surgical residencies last a minimum of five years, and you don't get to shortcut residencies. It doesn't matter how smart you are. So, she gets her bachelor's at 18. She graduates um, medical school six years later, and then she has five years of residency, except she's already on Atlantis in the middle of her surgical residency. Four years would have been medical school and then five years of res surgical residency. At least five years. It's a minimum of five years. So she would have, she should have legitimately been at least 30. Yeah. So it doesn't make sense that she was on the, on the expedition. Actually, it doesn't make sense that she was on the expedition at all, considering her age. But it doesn't make sense that she would have been on the expedition at any time before she was. So it doesn't matter what crazy crap they put. It's just like I mean, they can put crazy crap in. It doesn't mean it actually makes sense. Yeah, we did break it up. <laughs> we probably need to end it soon. <laughs> yeah, this one, this, this, I didn't think the catalyst thing would go so long, quite frankly. <laughs> I thought it would be about 40 minutes, but there you go. We're chatty bitches. We are. The catalyst is a very important part of determining of of the construction of a fix it you have to have a catalyst you have to have a catalyst that, that incites change and it can be a thought it can be an event it can be a person that comes into their life whatever it could be a news article they turned on the tv one morning and instead of normally they wouldn't and they saw something on the tv that 
it sparked change, but you need to, it also needs to be positioned close to, you know, it might actually happen off screen, but it needs to be positioned close to, if not be your first plot point, because um, I don't know why you embark on a fix it. If you have plot points happening a great distance from your catalyst. So um, now you could have the catalyst and your story starts like your catalyst is off screen and your story starts with your character acting on what they've decided to, to do differently. It's fine, but you just don't want to have a catalyst for change and then not have change for like 20,000 words. It doesn't make sense. It'd be boring. Yeah. That's a lot of backstory that you're plugging in. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I did have Keller cheat on her SATs. <laughs> Just to amuse myself, because you know, I'm just amusing myself is all that boiled down to. Um, in um, Sentinels of Atlantis, she's just a regular doctor; she's not a surgeon. Um, but uh, she's actually a, a very new doctor um, who has um, tr um, training for Sentinels and guides. Uh, but uh, even that was iffy for me. It's just she was a canon character, and I was like, "Fuck it." But that whole that she's just this awesome genius surgeon thing never resonated with me. It didn't make any sense. Although she does have a terrible fucking bedside manner, which is something that surgeons do have. Yeah. Oh, she's absolutely a Mary a canon Sue. She's a canon Sue. They inserted their Mary Poppins in and uh, you know. Hey Roger, you got the girl. Ugh. If and you have follow go because I'm yawning now. <laughs> yeah. If you have follow-up questions about the catalyst or the types of fix-its, um, just leave it in the podcast chat. If if your if your question is specific about your plot, you can always um, DM it to me or Kira, and we'll talk to you about it. Um, we can you know figure out how to make it generic and bring it up in a future Quantum Craft podcast, but. Um, the door is not shut on asking questions just because the podcast is over. That's right. Always ask questions. It's better to ask a question and get an answer than not ask a question and get it wrong, wrong, wrong. So we're going to tell Craig to fuck off. I hope you guys have a fantastic Sunday. <laughs> and we'll catch you later. Say goodnight, Jilly. Good night, everyone. <laughs>